of uh, the to the word of God, whether or not the word of God would be individuals would hold true to it, uh, and they would faithfully keep it. In fact, what what Paul told Timothy on a couple of occasions was that that would not happen; that they would be an apostasy and a falling away. In First Timothy chapter four, uh, in verse one. Paul says, now, the Spirit expressly says that in the latter time some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to receive with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So Paul tells Timothy up front, not only here, but in other places as well, that uh, people are going to fall away from the truth and there are going to be those who come... Uh, having itching ears and they're going to heap unto themselves teachers after their own lust and individuals will not uh, stay true to the word of God. He told the elders at Ephesus that some of that apostasy and that departing would come from among their own selves. So the Apostle Paul in these warnings that he gives several times gives Timothy a specific responsibility. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 20 he tells Timothy there to guard what was committed to your trust. Avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. And then as just as Brother Joe read for us a few moments ago, in the second epistle he writes to Timothy in chapter 1 and verse 14, he says it again. He says, tells to Timothy to guard the deposit that was entrusted to you. Now what was that deposit? The word there has the idea of something that's given to you as a down payment. Something that's given to you as it looks forward to something else that you become entrusted to, that you are, have a stewardship towards. I think what we recognize as we look at these passages that what Paul was talking to Timothy about was the gospel itself. Paul mentioned in the passage Joe read that he has been appointed a preacher, an apostle, one who would reveal the truth, that he had a special relationship to the Holy Spirit to reveal what was true. But the Timothy and the one whom he was going to, the ones whom Timothy would be instructed would also have a special responsibility to guard that which was entrusted through apostolic teaching. Now, how does that happen? How was it supposed to happen, maybe, is a way to present that question. And what is our responsibility today to defend ourselves from apostasy, even though God has told us there will be those who will fall away? How are we to guard ourselves as individuals and as a church? How do we guard the trust? And when we see false teaching, maybe emerging, how do we respond to that? Well, I'm not going to present a comprehensive answer to that. don't have time to do that, certainly tonight. But I want to present some things that have to do with what historically has been a response uh, of not only the early church, but as well of the Christendom or the Christian religion that followed. What has been a response to false teaching and a desire to solidify the teachings as to what God actually said in the Scriptures that has really proven to be very ineffective. And not only that, I believe proven to be uh, the source of a lot of division in religion. I don't know how much um, you, how much attention that you've given to the aspect of... Maybe this thing is not on. Let me turn it off here and then maybe better. Who keeps turning this thing off? attention you maybe you've given or how much uh, you've looked into this aspect of creeds. Uh, the idea that men would write down what they believe and use that as a means of trying to unify religious bodies and to be able to confront error. 
Creeds are a big part of, though we may not be real familiar with them, creeds are a big part of this aspect of uh, religious associations today. If, uh, if you look out to the different religious organizations that exist today, denominationalism and even, the, uh, in, in a, even a, a, maybe a more profound way, uh, the Catholic Church, what you're going to find is that creeds are a big part of their history and the development of these particular bodies. And what we can come to recognize, and what I want to try to approach somewhat tonight, is, that, is whether or not that's a good approach to false teaching, and what's been the effect of what we might term as creedal religion, or the idea of the attempt to try to uh, guard the trust of the Word of God by putting down in a codified way what we should and should not believe, and what individuals should accept and what they should not accept. Historically speaking, uh, one way that Christendom, and by that I mean re- Christian religion, those who follow, which claim to follow Christ, whether uh, whether uh, uh, truly or falsely, one way they've responded to unorthodox teaching and controversy among themselves when they could not agree was to sit down and formulate a particular document, and in that document to lay down the things that individuals ought to believe because this is what they esteem that the Bible actually teaches or what God desires. Uh, and what we recognize is that many, many have made, come to the conclusion that that is an appropriate way to approach false teaching. And what has emerged as a result of that then is that the creeds become standards and have become standards by which others are judged as either being right or wrong with God, inside or outside the body of Christ. And those who hold to the published position are considered to be faithful and those who do not hold to the published position at least by those who made up the creed, are considered to be uh, heretics and many times to cut off and marked and set aside. Now, that's historically what's taken place. And we're going to talk a little, I want to talk a little bit about that, uh, about, to, about that tonight, particularly from the standpoint of what our responsibility is from the Bible. But the word creed comes from the word credo, the Latin credo, which means I believe. And that's an interesting that, that's an interesting word because sometimes we might, at least maybe from our former teaching, might come away with the idea that creeds are something bad and creed has a negative connotation. Yet when you look at the meaning of the word credo, it means I believe. How many of us believe? Uh, how many of us are aware of what we believe and are willing to tell other individuals what we believe? So there's nothing wrong with making a statement of what we believe. In the use of the terminology itself, a creed is not something that is inherently wrong. In fact, the Bible is full of the aspect of credo, of people saying, this is what I believe, or this is what God wants us to believe. Certainly, we recognize the import of that in apostolic teaching. It's necessary to take a stand for the truth. Confession itself is, in a sense, a credo or a creed. And we may agree with what's published in a particular creed by any particular religious body, and that in itself, you see, would be a good thing from the standpoint of agreeing with others about what we believe the Bible teaches. Certainly, we strive to agree with one another. But what I want to suggest to you tonight as we look at this is that the formulation of creeds as a way of creating unity is designed to go beyond simply the aspect of stating a belief. That it be, has become, and certainly is, in many ways was intended to be an authoritative statement or a position to, a, uh, to which others are expected to assent. And what is the result of that in religion? Does God expect that? Does He want that? Is that something that God has called on the church or God's people to do? Well, those who wrote creeds were not just writing what they thought their opinion was. 
The idea of writing creeds was not so everybody would get together and we would just, you write down what you believe and I write down what I believe, we'll try to formulate a doctrine about it. But rather, the formulation of creeds in church history was that individuals were writing this down to show others what was essential truth, to come up with a list of things that all of us must absolutely agree on, that we must absolutely hold to be true, and therefore provide a platform from which we can unite. That these are the things that we all hold to be true, and therefore we can unite on these things that are not included in the creed then. We might either be able to disagree on, or at least what we would recognize is that those things are not essential to fellowship, or at least not yet dealt with by the church. Now the appearance of creeds in religious history is interesting because it goes all the way back to what is often called the Apostles' Creed. And maybe you've come across the Apostles' Creed in some of your study or your reading uh, or uh, in your discussion maybe with other religious individuals. It's the, the Apostles' Creed, the words of the Apostles' Creed, was first mentioned in an ancient letter about 390 A.D. So we put things in a historical perspective almost 400 years after the time of Christ. There was a formulation of an actual document that's mentioned as holding to these particular truths. It's often claimed that the Apostles' Creed, hence its name, had its derivation from the twelve apostles themselves. And what Catholic tradition teaches about this is that these things were put together uh, in somewhat uh, uh, disconnected form by the apostles and then later on they were brought together and made into a formulaic statement about what the church was to teach or what the church was to hold to be essentially true. And it was formulated through the apostles themselves. There's no evidence that that's true. And certainly there's nothing in the Bible about that. So we'll put that out there in the very beginning that the aspect of the that an Apostles' Creed would exist apart from the inspired literature of the New Testament is certainly something that only uh, is contained in traditional history uh, of others beyond the New Testament. It's not found in the Bible itself. But what's the Apostles' Creed say? Have you ever read it? It says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He ascended to the dead, or some some translations say to hell. On the third day He rose again, He ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Now, you look at that, understanding the word Catholic there is not designation of any particular religious body. It simply means, the word simply means universal, that there is a universal church. And you look at what's said there, and you think, well, do you agree with all of that? Well, certainly I read through the Apostles' Creed, I don't see anything that really stands out as me as being false doctrine. In fact, what is presented here is pretty basic and pretty fundamental to understanding what the Bible actually teaches. So I would propose to you that our first reaction to this creed that exists is that we would either initially accept it or reject it based upon what we already know the Bible teaches. That we would not judge the creed based on our opinions, we would not judge the creed based upon our feelings, that the only way a creed could have any credence among us is if it actually supported what was already found in the Word of God. Now keep that in mind because that's precisely what the, uh, the intention of the creed originally was, was to make known that which was officially resp- revealed by the Holy Spirit through the Apostles, hence the Apostles' Creed. But it, the, the development of creedal religion didn't end with that, Either we trace it back to the second century, we recognize that it didn't end with the aspect of the development of a single statement about what the Bible actually taught. 
The creeds have punctuated the history of Christian religion for a long time. And it wasn't too long after that, the Nicene Creed, the First Council of Nicaea in 325, was formulated by what was then the Catholic Church to, to, to deal with the aspect of whether or not Jesus was fully God or whether or not He was fully man or whether or not He was part one and part the other. So the disagreement about the nature of Jesus Christ in the Nicene Creed was developed, it was formulated to answer that question. The Chalcedonian Creed was adapted at the Council of Chalcedon in 451 in Asia Minor, again, dealing with the dual nature of Jesus. The Athanasian Creed focused on the Trinitarian doctrine and specifically pointed out that the Godhead was three different persons, but it formulated also something that began to be developed in this aspect of creeds, and that is that you either believe this or you're out. And the Chalcedonian Creed states specifically something that was not found in the other two performer creeds in the inclusion of anathemas or the condemnation of those who disagreed with the creed. If you don't agree with this, then you're not a part of us and you're a heretic and you need to be put out. Now all that's interesting history, particularly as we might develop it through in in our understanding of the development of uh, different religions and Catholicism and what we might think of even uh, more specifically as apostate religion. But what's the problem with creeds? And uh, if we believe that creeds are not what God would want us to formulate, how we come to that conclusion. If a creed is simply a statement of what I believe, then there's nothing wrong with that. We all do this from time to time. You sit down with a pen or pencil and you write an article about what you believe the Bible teaches about marriage and divorce, or about what you believe the Bible teaches about lying, or about some other subject that the Bible addresses. Even historical documents about the Bible, in essence, are are the aspect of a credo. They are simply statements of what we believe. So as every time a person writes an article and publishes it in a paper, have they written a creed in the sense of what we're talking about now? Are we making a creed when we oppose error, when we stand up and write a letter and say, we don't think this is true, this is not what we ought to believe? Does something become a creed because others agree with it? Because we, as we all stand up and we say we all agree that Jesus is the Son of God or that the church is one or that we ought to take the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week. If we make those statements in a uniform fashion, have we developed a creed? And if we have, are there any problems with that? Sometimes I think this has posed a problem for us because of the aspect of simply looking at creeds as something that a statement of faith, and sometimes they're called that, when actually we fail to recognize the intention of creed or religion and how divisive it is. When I'm using the word creeds here, and we've talked about it historically, one thing I think I want you to recognize is that there are more terminologies that deal with this particular part of religious history than just the aspect of a creed. Sometimes it's called a creed, such as the Apostles' Creed. But I'm using the word in a general way to refer to statements of faith, confessions of faith, the aspect uh, you see of, uh, of the declarations of councils where individuals get together and establish fellowship based upon, you see, a consensus statement written down by which other individuals can be judged. Now what's wrong with that? Well, that's what I want to do tonight in the time we have left is propose to you some things why I think creedal religion is wrong and why we ought to avoid it and why it really it, it hampers the unity that God expects among His people. And as well... It has other problems associated with the aspect of your individual faith and my individual faith and what the Bible actually teaches. One thing I think that we recognize is that the creed is designed to define 
and safeguard a fellowship of something greater than a local church. What you see these early creeds recognize is that there was different beliefs in different geographical locations. So there were folks over here that believed Jesus was just a man. There were folks over here that believed Jesus was both God and man. There are those who believe that Jesus actually came in the flesh. There are others who believe he couldn't possibly have come in the flesh or he had no divine characteristics at all. And so these, these controversies among different Christians in different locations and different congregations erupted. That's been true about, about the religion of Christ almost since its beginning, even the New Testament itself. We recognize there were different things being taught in different places. Paul dealt with the church at Thessalonica about their, their belief that the, the, that the resurrection, you see, uh, that individuals that had died would miss out in the resurrection or that the resurrection was already passed. Or even in 1 Corinthians that there were those maybe who thought there would be no resurrection. So there were disagreements among Christians about what God actually had revealed in the Spirit from the very beginning. But what the creed was designed to do was to make an official statement by which fellowship could be established and that, w- that men would write this p- particular statement down and then the creed would imply that those who do not agree with the creed as it's written would be considered apostate, unworthy of fellowship in a universal sense so that the creed itself would define the fellowship itself. Now what's wrong with that? Well, that's basically error. Because fellowship in a local church is the responsibility of the local church and the leadership of a church as it exists. Certainly Paul respected that at Corinth in the aspect that you guys got a bit together and you got to be, all speak the same mind, but your speaking the same mind is based upon your willingness to hold to apostolic doctrine what I'm teaching. That there's no consensus among yourselves nor are the churches going to get together and figure out how they're going to come to an agreement about this. That local church and the leaders of that local church had an individual responsibility, even the disciplines of its members, based upon this local fellowship. A creed by its very nature removes this fellowship from the hands of God and puts it in the hands of men in a universal sense. It imposes an orthodoxy over the brotherhood to which the individuals who compose the creed have no authority to impose. And I think what we recognize in this is that that's because the creed itself by nature is superimposed on Scripture. And that's what we said before. That the way you would judge the credibility of a creed is how it agreed with what had already been revealed. It wasn't like you would judge it on your own feelings. You would judge it on whether or not the Bible actually taught that. This is what God actually said. So creed makers violated the principle that the Bible is clear and sufficient. It violates the very principle that you can read the Scriptures and understand them themselves. If you can't read the Scriptures and understand them, how can you possibly understand a creed that's supposed to explain the Scriptures to you? You can't know if it's right or wrong unless you already understand what the Bible teaches. Unless you're simply going to take the word of the creed maker that this is what the Bible teaches and yet you have a personal responsibility to come to your own faith. What Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 is all scripture is given by the inspiration of God. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So what is the scripture missing? What part of it could the creed maker possibly supply that's needed for the understanding of the scriptures or for the sufficiency of the scriptures to impose conviction upon the individual? Paul says it's all inspired and it's probable to make the man absolutely complete. And Jude chapter chapter 1 verse 3, contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. 
So Jude says it's all been delivered. It's not like there is a word and then there is interpretation of the word, or that there has to come an understanding, an explanation of the word. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Peter said he has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So when we ask, when we talk about, think about what's wrong with the creed, one of the basic aspects of it is that, is that the creed by very nature superimposes itself on the top of or over the top of that which we are to believe. And what we're going to notice is, is that it becomes the authoritative document rather than the scriptures themselves. The preacher Ben Franklin wrote, No man of intelligence will affirm in plain terms that the Bible is not sufficient for the government of the saints or that man uninspired can make a creed that will serve a better purpose than the Bible. That if we have the Bible, we have what we need. And so the creed assumes a position of authority that's unwarranted, even in the very beginning. The aspect that man could make a document that regulate the conscience of men beyond the local church, that it would define fellowship beyond the local church, is something the Bible never taught. What gives any group of men on a broad scale, whether it's a paper or a college, or whether it's any organized effort by men at all, to issue a statement to define fellowship in God's church? There's no authority for that. And certainly those who were involved in the restoration of New Testament Christianity in this country understood that very clearly. If you ever have a chance to study church history uh, and, or, and you've never come across it before, look up the document, uh, the last will and testament uh, of the Springfield Presbytery, which the Springfield Presbytery, you see, was a religious organization, a denominational religious organization, and those who came out of it uh, to... to to embrace New Testament Christianity realized they couldn't keep this association that there was no warranty for it and so they issued the last will and testament of the Springfield Presbytery which is interesting it is a creedal document that says we're not going to do this anymore there will be no other creeds but what we recognize as well is that a creed is an instrument of division not unity which is rather ironic because the creed was designed to unite and prevent apostasy it was designed to the aspect to make clear doc- doctrines on which we ought to unite, but it actually causes division. Creeds cause parties of men lining up behind the document where men will say, I agree with this, others will say, I don't agree with this, and then in attempting to defend the creed, they actually fail to defend Scripture or cease to defend Scripture and begin to defeat the, defend the creed itself. This becomes evident when we look at the number of creedal documents that developed during, what, during the emergence of the Reformation movement it testifies this effect that during the Reformation movement and we look at that as a time in which a lot of different denominational bodies and churches developed that what you see next to the development of all of these bodies were actual physical documents that defined who these people are and what they believe and that, that precipitated the aspect of them being separated from each other because that this, this particular group had a creed and this particular group had a confession of faith and those weren't the same documents and so they weren't united on the same documents or even, to, uh, to make the point even more, on the same truths. Now what this brings me to my next point is that creeds are also wrong because the fact that they are the product of men's thinking, creeds demand revision and elaboration. We already saw that in the Apostles' Creed, that original one, so to speak, written down basic documents, but then that didn't solve everything. There were still controversies and disagreements over the nature of Jesus. And so then came another document that became more specific and specifically pointed out the things that were not in the first. Because the first one didn't specifically deal with the humanity or the divinity of Jesus. But the Nicene Creed became more specific. And then the Chalcedonian Creed more specific to the aspect of whether or not Jesus actually came in the flesh. Various interpretations, you see, that emerge make it difficult to stop the process of men writing down what the Bible teaches and making that 
clarifying those issues by which we can unite. What this tends to do, and certainly what it did do, is that it enhanced the power of the church to interpret Scripture for the people. And that is a basic error, a fundamental error, of the aspect of biblical authority. The church is not a legislative body. Jesus is the head of His church. The church is those individuals who follow Jesus and who are saved by Jesus, but the church doesn't make law, nor is it, nor is it called upon to interpret law for the aspect of determining fellowship. But when you establish creeds and when individuals get together and publish documents for the purpose of defining fellowship, then that's exactly what happens. Those who publish the documents become those you see who have the power to interpret Scripture and ultimately to define fellowship. So that process becomes never-ending and in a sense it becomes self-defeating. There will always be one more thing to clarify, one more thing to present the acceptable position upon. And if you don't think that might not be true, consider the aspect of the number, as I mentioned before, the number of documents that are involved in the aspect of uh, the uh, Reformation movement. I thought I had that paper up here with you, but I'll share it with you afterwards if I can find it. But there are about 30 different confessions of faith and documents that are associated with the major the divisions of the Reformation movement, where one particular group says, this is what we believe, another group says, this is what we believe, some of them specifically on issues. But the Augsburg Confession of Faith, the aspect of the Catechism of Luther, were all designed, you see, to make clear to other individuals what they believe the Bible taught on this particular subject and specifically to expose error that were taught by others. And those documents then became authoritative. And many religious bodies rely upon those particular documents still extant today to define their faith. And that leads me to my last point, and that is that a creed is wrong because a creed by its very nature stifles individual Bible study. By putting a demand on the members of a group to accept the creed, that writing becomes by its very nature You see, something that strangles individual Bible study. Because now that we have codified what we believe, now that we've put it down and called upon everybody who will be a part of our group to believe this, then they no longer need to study the Scriptures for themselves. They certainly don't need to go back to the Scriptures, but they don't even need to study the Creed because it has clarified for them what their position must be. The creed itself was designed from the very beginning to be a final answer. Now there needs to be a final answer. I don't want to be misunderstood here. It's not as though God's word is ambiguous or the truth is relative. There needs to be a final answer in the conviction of every individual. But that final answer must have its source in the scriptures themselves and not in the writings of men. So we come together to study the scriptures as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 so that we can speak the truth in love and we can become a full, per, a, a full per, mature individual to the measure of Christ, to a full-grown man to the measure of Christ. That process of coming to the full maturity of God takes place through the preaching and teaching of the Word of God itself and not through creed or religion. Anything that would effectively end open Bible study that would cut short the aspect of the search for truth and the continual search for truth within the Scriptures is not only dangerous, but it's wrong. Every generation must go through the process of coming to establish their own faith in God and developing their own faith based upon the Scriptures. That's why we teach children the Bible in Bible classes. 
it's not so that we can teach them our creed or we can lay down to them what we want them to believe, but rather we can instill with them a desire to find the source of truth within Scripture itself. To affiliate and make them familiar with what the Bible actually teaches and the words of the Bible so that as they come to age, they can come to their own faith. Because if they don't come to their own faith, they can't be pleasing to God, nor will they have the basis on which they can trust God unwaveringly. Now, for adults, that also is very important because we must constantly recheck our beliefs. We must look and see whether or not we are following precisely what God has given us to follow and whether or not we're correct about these things. Our original position on something, particularly if it's written down and it's codified, you see, solidifies that for all times and not only opposes a, a, a real obstacle to changing my mind, so to speak, on what is true. How many have failed to follow what God would have them to follow in the development of their religious thought because what they were finding violated something that had already been codified in a creed to which they were giving allegiance? And that makes it wrong. How sure were the Pharisees of their messianic expectations? And what kept them from coming to a full realization when Jesus would teach them face to face about what was coming? What kept them from accepting what Jesus said? Well, the Bible's pretty clear about that. It violated their traditions. It violated their creed or religion where they had taken God's Word and codified it in their own thinking and put it down and said, now you must agree with this or you're not one of us. So creed or religion exists in the time of Jesus from the standpoint of the writings of the Pharisees and their traditions of the elders, and it did precisely what we're talking about here and always will do, and that is it stifles the aspect of the objective study of the truth and the acceptance of what God says. But the Pharisees were pretty sure of their messianic expectations. But they were pretty wrong about it as well. Our primary allegiance, then, is not to a group. It's not to a congregation or to association of congregations. It's not to a brotherhood or even to a distinguished set of beliefs that have been established through teaching over time. Our allegiance is to the truth as revealed in Scripture. Regardless of the consequence as who would be following it, who would accept it, or who would reject it, or whether or not it's been written down or never been written down. Our allegiance is to truth. And it's, it's, it's an allegiance that goes beyond the aspect of whether or not individuals react to it negatively or positively. It's based upon what God has revealed. Now, that brings me full circle. It takes me back to where all this began, and that is apostolic revelation. Is there an Apostles' Creed, a true Apostles' Creed, to which I can hold to? And the answer to that is absolutely true. There is an Apostles' Creed, but it's not the one written by men. It's not the one that developed through religious history. It's the one that came by the Holy Spirit when men were guided or moved by the Holy Spirit and they wrote down what God actually said. And let me never confuse what God actually says with what I say about it. Because those two things are not the same. Even when what I say agrees with what the Bible says, even if I'm right on what the Bible says, there is an absolute difference between what I say and what the Bible says, what the Scriptures actually say. That must absolutely be the source of everything that I believe. And that's what Peter said in 1 Peter 4, verse 11. If any man speak, let him speak as the very oracles of God. Let him speak what God speaks. And the literal aspect of that is that it speak the very words that God would speak. To use a human document to line people up on this side or that side, to force individuals to trust in a human document rather than what's actually found in the Scriptures is a horrendous error. And it's an avenue to division. 
Some will fall in line with the doctrine because it appears to be authoritative and confident because this seems to be what ought to be said. This seems to, this seems to be what, pe- what people of no really believe about this. And therefore, they will not check it out themselves. They'll put confidence in the document, for themse- for the, uh, document itself and thereby fail to search for the truth. That's a dangerous situation indeed. It not only applies to official creeds or confessions of faith that might exist and do exist in denominational bodies, but it also might very well exist to brotherhood papers or positions taken by preachers that we know or the aspect of what this church teaches or that church teaches, meaning congregations. Those can become as creedal as any element of an actual written document when they become the basis of faith rather than what God has actually revealed. The problem with creeds is not an opposition to error. Nor is it wrong because it's a statement of what one believes. One can agree with what's contained in a creed. What's written down could certainly be the truth. But the issue with the creed is that it oversteps the line of the teaching of authority altogether. It takes it out of the hands of God and out of the words of God and puts it in the minds and the writings of men. God alone defines the parameters of fellowship. He alone has the universal authority to tell us what we are to believe and what we are to practice. And so when we think about creed. If a creed is a document that defines what I believe then do I have one? This is my creed. And this is all that I could ever hold up and espouse to be my creed as far as what I believe is what God has already written down. Now look at the Old Testament. Again, I'm finished here, but the idea of the aspect of revelation in the Old Testament is insightful here. Because as we studied through the Old Testament documents that deal with the, the, the revelation of God, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, what we've noticed over and over again is that there is a harking back. That there is not a rewriting or even an interpretation of what's been presented. That what God called on His people to adhere to in the times of the judges and following is what God had written at Sinai. That that revelation has already been made known and He would, re, he would reiterate to them the authority of what had been written. Because what had came on Sinai and what was revealed through inspiration to Moses, that itself was creed. So I dare not practice or believe anything less or more than what's in the Bible. And that's generally what we think about or maybe teach about creeds. What's wrong with the creed? Well, if it says more than the Bible, it says too much. If it says less than the Bible, it doesn't say enough. And that's pretty, that's a pretty concise way of put it, presenting the aspect of a creed. That doesn't mean that I don't ever want to write down what I believe or that it's wrong to write down what I believe, but it means that I have to look deeper into understanding where the source of my faith really comes. Doy Moyer, and I got a lot of what I presented in this lesson from an article I read by Doy Moyer in doing some research search for the lesson that we're going to give in Lord Willing and Sierra Leone. He, does, he, he writes some very good things about the aspect of the development of creeds. He says this. He says, A creed is a sectarian trap. If not careful, the Christian may fall prey to the allurement of a document, aside from the Bible, that carries the weight of a respected body of men and seeks to impose their will and their orthodoxy on others. Instead, constant reaffirmation of the all-sufficiency of the Scripture is what's needed, that each Christian must stand for himself and rest his confidence in the Word of God. Now what's fascinating about that? is that that's the biblical avenue to unity. That we maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That the true avenue to unity is not for you and I to get together and interpret the Bible in a consensus way and make everybody fall in line. The true way to unity is for all of us individually to go to the Bible and come to our conclusions and make our allegiance to God and God alone and follow a single standard, thereby uniting ourselves in the words of the Spirit. Thank you for your attention tonight. Uh, Maybe a little out of the ordinary into what we've looked at from the standpoint of these things is maybe even from the standpoint of what interests you 
But I would suggest these, the aspect of the problem with creed or religion should be interesting to you because as a Christian, we ought to be concerned about the avenue to unity and we ought to be concerned about whether or not historically religions have taken the right path. And looking around us and understanding why there is so much religion, religious division around us and what might be some of the causes of that. And I think certainly creeds present a cause of religious division today. So we ought to call people back and call ourselves back to the scriptures and the scriptures alone. And certainly that's what we would do if we're going to tell someone how to become a Christian. But not find any confidence in the writings of men. In fact, if you want to find division among men, just go out and ask somebody how to become a Christian. You'll find a lot of different answers to that question. But only one answer matters, and that's the one that's found in Scripture. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Can we help you do that while we stand and while we sing?